Well, our scripture reading this morning is in John's Gospel, chapter 5. John's Gospel, chapter 5, and we're going to read from the 16th verse through to the 30th verse. So would you stand with me, please, for the reading of God's Word? John 5, verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all, all that he himself is doing. In greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. I'm going to read that verse again. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to exercise judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear, the vo- hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, before we consider this passage this morning, let's just ask for the Lord's help. God, our Father, your servant, the Apostle Paul, said, I count all things but loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And Lord, this morning, we just long to know Christ better. But we realize that we are only able to know him to the degree that your Holy Spirit opens our hearts and minds to receive the word and to understand. And so we come to you, Lord, and ask that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word. And I pray that every word that I speak would Give glory and honor 
to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for we ask it in his worthy name. Amen. Well, we're continuing together in our study of John's Gospel, and we find ourselves this afternoon at, at the fifth chapter, and this is a dense chapter. There is a lot there. And the chapter sort of logically breaks down into three parts. There was what we had last week, which is the Lord's third sign in healing the invalid on the Sabbath day. And in the scripture that we've read today, we see the controversy that arose because of that healing, not just because it happened on the Sabbath day, but also because of the claims that the Lord Jesus made as to his identity. And then in the third section, which we'll have next week, the Lord brings forward a multitude of witnesses to give testimony to his true identity. So that's kind of how the chapter breaks down in broad strokes. And so we're going to focus on that middle section today, and that is the controversy that arose because of the claims that Jesus made as to his identity. Well, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, the Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, said this. He asked a question at the trial of the Lord Jesus, and that question was this. What shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? It's a question that is of utmost importance. In fact, there will come a day when what you have done with Jesus will be the only question that matters at all. And before this sermon is over today, each one of us must ask, must answer that question. What will you do with Jesus? To not answer the question is in itself an answer. But before you answer that question, we're going to examine in this passage the claims of the Lord Jesus. Now, all of what we read here is a response to the Jews' accusation that Jesus was healing, that Jesus' healing on the Sabbath was illegal, unlawful, as they put it. Now, in response to that, the Lord Jesus could have said what he said in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. He could have just said, well, what man is there among you who has one sheep, and if he falls, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not lay hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value, then, is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. The Lord could have just said that, but he didn't. Not here. His defense is altogether different, unexpected, and astonishing. His defense is that he is doing exactly what God the Father is doing. Jesus put it this way, my father has been working until now, and I am working. His accusers were aghast by this statement because he was, he was not only calling God his father, making himself equal with God, but to make this claim, Jesus was, would also have to be saying that he could perfectly see and know everything that the father was doing. That he lived in perfect, uninterrupted, intimate communion with the Father. And that he was equal in power with the Father. William Barclay, commenting on this, put it this way, and I quote, 
For Jesus to speak like this was an act of the most extraordinary and unique courage. He must have known well that to make claims like this would sound the sheerest blasphemy to the Orthodox Jewish leader and was to court death. The man who listened to words like this had only two alternatives. He must either accept Jesus as the Son of God or hate him as a blasphemer. There is hardly any passage where Jesus' appeal for men's love, where Jesus appeals for men's love and defies men's hatred as he does here. Close quote. There was no way that any man could make such a claim unless he himself was God. This was exactly what Jesus was claiming about himself, and it was not lost on them, for in verse 18 we read, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, in response to their shock, the Lord spends 11 verses making unmistakable claims about his relationship to God the Father, claims that you and I need to consider as we evaluate the question, what will we do with Jesus? Now, I want to consider these passage, this uh, passage under three headings. The unity of the Father and the Son, the love of the Father for the Son, and the life that is in the Father and the Son. Let me say that again. The unity of the Father and the Son, the love of the Father for the Son, and the life that is in the Father and the Son. I want to insert a little warning here because we are about to tread on holy ground. And I believe that God puts such truth outside of the reach of the casual, disinterested listener. And I believe that if we are to grapple with the truth that is contained in these verses and their staggering implication, the Spirit of God must work in us first to give us a true hunger and a longing to know the Son. The other danger, of course, is that we attack the text with the restless zeal of an academic to acquire an orthodox confession that is as clear as ice and just as cold. Now, we need the Spirit of God to give us the heart of the Apostle who said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. But with that, let's start with our first topic, the unity of the Father and the Son. The start of verse 19 should read, Jesus therefore answered and said to them. It's in response to the shock that they expressed in verse 18. And then he says, truly, truly. Now we hear that term, truly, truly, three times in this passage. And it is a signal to us to sit up and listen. It's how the Spirit of God highlights something that is of particular importance. So truly, truly, the Son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Now, what man could say that he could do nothing of his own accord or nothing of his own will? Could you say that? 
Could you say or could I say that I do nothing of my own will? Of course I can't say that. I act out of my own will all the time. And sometimes acting out of my own will, I act against God's will. But not the Son of God. He could not act outside of the Father's will. It's not, just, it's not just that Jesus did not act independently of the Father. He could not. Not because he lacked any power in himself, but because he was so united to the Father that he could not act independently. Now, I want us to understand that equality is not the same thing as independency. It was a moral impossibility for Jesus to act independently from the Father. So healing the man on the Sabbath was as much a work of the Father as it was a work of the Son. So their controversy, the Jews' controversy, was as much with the Father as it was with the Son. But for the Lord to make such a statement imply that he could perfectly see and know everything that the Father was doing. And we see that in verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. Now imagine if I said to you, what I do is what God does. And therefore, by resisting me, you are resisting God. For my work is his work, and his work is my work. They are inseparably connected, and I see perfectly everything that God does and know his every thought and action perfectly and flawlessly. But you'd say that's blasphemous. And it would be for any man to say that unless he was both man and God. Here Jesus is making an unmistakable claim to equality with God. For them to accept this statement, they would have to acknowledge that they were standing in the presence of Almighty God. Now, when Moses came into the presence of God, he said, I am exceedingly afraid and tremble. Hebrews 12, 21. And when Isaiah came into the presence of God, he said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah 6. They too were standing in the presence of the same eternal God veiled in human flesh. But they resisted him with every fiber of their bodies and sought to kill him. What a terrible position to take. And yet people are taking that position all around us today. You see, this was always the heart of man toward God. But now with the incarnate son of God before them, their contempt finds an object. And that is why I believe that the father committed all judgment to the son. So that those who despised him and resisted him as man would face him in a coming day as their judge. But this takes us to our second point. We've talked about the unity of the Father and the Son. Now we're going to talk about the love of the Father for the Son. So for them we have three things. The Son has power to do all that the Father does. He is omnipotent God. The Son knows and sees all that the Father is doing. He is omniscient God. And the Son has the power to execute judgment. He is the supreme sovereign judge. 
The Father desires that it be so because, the, because he loves the Son and so that he may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Now, this is a remarkable statement, and I want us to understand what a remarkable statement this is. The God that said, I am the Lord, there is, that, it, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. That God desires equal honor to be given to the Son. And in this we see the equality of the Father and the Son, and we see in this the intense love that the Father has for the Son. And we see this theme of the, the love that the Father has for the Son throughout this gospel. In John 3.35, for example, we read the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And then in John 10.17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. And then in the synoptics, we have at the Lord's baptism, that voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then again on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. The The Father loves the Son and desires above all else to glorify Him. And you can't understand anything properly about God and about his ways with man until you understand his love for the Son and that his eternal purposes center around the exaltation of Christ. I want to say that again. You can't understand anything properly about God until you understand this first. God's love for the Son and that all his purposes center around the exaltation of Christ. You know, there's an idea that sort of floats around Christian circles today where it's all about what God does for me, what's in it for me, that God has a happy plan for my life, and that it all sort of starts with me and goes out from there. No, that's not the way it works. It starts with his love for the Son, and we are brought into that. What should this understanding of the deep love of the heart of the Father for the Son do to us, do for us as those that belong to Christ? Well, it should bring you to a great peace and security for you are in Christ and therefore you are caught up in that love and you have become an object of that same love. And the more you meditate upon it and understand it and enter into it, the more it will lift you above the trials of this life and give you unspeakable joy and peace. And the degree to which the love of Christ energizes your service and the glory of Christ becomes its focus, you will find the inexhaustible power of God enabling your efforts. As the hymn writer put it, so near, so very near to God, I cannot nearer be, for in the person of the Son, I am as near as he. So dear, so very dear to God, more dear I cannot be. The love wherewith he loves the Son, such is his love for me. In his book, Triumphing Over Sinful Fear, John Flavel wrote, and I quote, If we were to understand how dear we are to God, our relation to him, 
our value in his eyes and how he protects us by his faithful promises and gracious presence, we would not tremble at every appearance of danger, close quote. Isn't that practical for us today? When the world around us and many believers too are in a tizzy over all the, the events that are facing us, but what an ocean to swim in is God's love for Christ, which embraces us and how it lifts us above the trials and the worries and the cares that are a very real part of our life. And it's easy to become focused upon our love for God. But that often leads to discouragement because, let's be honest, it ebbs and flows, doesn't it? But the Spirit of God would focus us on God's love for us through Christ. And that brings peace and that brings joy. Well, we've seen that the Father desires that, they, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father, which means that you cannot honor the Father unless you honor the Son. And how do you honor the Son? Well, we have this in verse 24. And it's highlighted again with those words, truly, truly. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed, but has passed from death to life. So you honor the son by hearing his word. Now that's not just listening, that's accepting. J.C. Ryle put it this way, and I quote, It's not enough to hear sermons and run after preachers, though some people seem to think this makes up the whole of religion. We We must go much further than this. We must hear Christ to submit our hearts to Christ's teaching, to sit humbly at his feet by faith and learn of him, to enter his school as penitents, And become his believing scholars. To hear his voice and follow him. This is the way to heaven. Close quote. So again, you honor the son by hearing his word and believing on him who sent him. And that's not just believing in God. But believing that God the father has sent him. That is how you honor the Son. And the results of so honoring him is that you do not come into judgment. All the judgment that your sins deserve, will never, you will never come into, them, come into it. Instead, you will have passed from death into life. That is the happy condition of those who honor the Son. Well, that takes us to our last point. We've talked about the unity of the Father and the Son. And we've talked about the love of the Father for the Son. Now we're going to talk about the life that is in the Father and the Son. And so in verse 26 we read, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Now it could never be said of anyone but God that he has life in himself. Right? Every one of us has life, but we have been given life, except God. God has life in himself, and this means two things. So listen carefully to this. This means that the, that the Son, like the Father, is uncreated, self-existent, 
having neither beginning nor end. And it also means that, like the Father, the Son is the source of life and has the power to give life to others. The Father has granted the Son, as men, to give life. And in verse 25 and verse 28, we see two different times where that power is, is, ex, is exercised. In verse 25, he was already and would continue to give life to the spiritually dead. And in verse 28, he would, in a coming day, raise the physically dead, some to eternal resurrection life and some to judgment. Now let's just drill down into, into those two events in a little more detail. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. This is speaking of spiritually dead people that are coming to life through hearing the voice of Jesus, the Son of God. You say, well, who are those people? Well, we've been reading about them, haven't we, as we've been going through the Gospel of John. It would include Peter and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel, the believing Samaritans and the family of the man whose son was dying. These all were dead. And then they heard the voice of Jesus and they lived. They, like you and me, were born unable to see, hear, or respond to God. That was our condition. But the Spirit of God worked in them and enabled them to recognize and hear the Son of God. And through hearing, they received everlasting life. And though their bodies have long since died and decayed, they live on to this day with Christ who gave them spiritual life. But... The voice that gave them spiritual life, their bodies will hear again. And they will be raised imperishable, and death will be swallowed up in victory. But they are not the only company whose bodies will be raised by his voice. For remember, it is not only granted to the Son to have life in himself, but also authority to execute judgment. So those who rejected him, they too will be raised, not to enter eternal life, but to stand before Jesus as their judge. The one who they rejected as their savior, they must now meet as their judge. For remember, the father has given all judgment to the son. So both companies who are in the grave will hear his voice and come out of their graves. But that is the only thing that is in common about their eternal destinies. Those who have done good will come out to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Well, you say, is it doing good deeds that makes it possible for me to participate in the resurrection of life? No, we know that's not true. It is, of course, not their deeds that enable them to take part in the resurrection life, but the life of Christ that is in them that enables them to do those deeds. But on the other hand, there is no good deed that a man or woman can do in the eyes of God while they are rejecting the Son. Well, I want to conclude all this with verse 30. 
And I think in verse 30, the Lord refers back to their accusation that it was unlawful for him to heal on the Sabbath day. That it was unjust. And he declares, my judgment is just. I take it his judgment in healing on the Sabbath. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him that sent me. He sought the glory of God. That was his singular motive. What was their motive? What was their motive? Well, if you skip ahead to verse 44, you'll see what their motive was. It was to seek glory from one another. That's why they couldn't believe, because they prioritized glory from others above glory for God. I want to pause for just a moment here and have you contrast with me between what Jesus sought and what they sought. The glory of God versus the glory of man. That was why they could not believe. That is why they could not accept that he was the life-giving son of God. And it may be why you can't believe as well. Believing these claims of Jesus Christ is not an academic exercise. It's not something that you can study your way into believing. There is a condition of heart that is required. Whose glory do you seek this afternoon? Are you seeking the praise of people? Are you seeking the acceptance of your peers and professional associates and friends? Are you seeking to gain the symbols of wealth or sophistication or political correctness to get a pass in the eyes of the people that you admire? That focus draws you away from the glory that is due to God. You cannot focus in both directions at the same time. You have to choose either the glory of God or the honor of man. And I want to say this afternoon that our society is collapsing under the leadership of those who have come in their own name and who seek their own glory. And their leadership caters to people that seek glory from others, not the glory of God. But God the Father has set forth the Son as Lord of all and declared that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ boldly and unapologetically claimed to be the Son of God with the power to give life and execute judgment. His voice will one day bring you from your grave and you will meet him either as your Savior or as your judge, to partake in the resurrection of life or the resurrection of judgment, what will it be? What will it be? You've heard the declaration of the Father about the Son, and you've heard Jesus' emphatic claim to be the Son of God. So now I take you back to the question that we started with, the question that Pilate asked, what will I do? with Jesus, who is called Christ. And I ask you that question. What will you do with Jesus? Well, before we come to the Lord's table this morning, I want to say a word to those who know and love Jesus Christ. 
You know, our Lord didn't exactly avoid conflict here, did he? In fact, it seems that it was his pattern to heal on the Sabbath. And he could have used a much less inflammatory defense of his work than equality with God. But he stood unwavering to defend the glory of the Father and the Son. And now he calls upon us to make a bold stand in a culture that hates him as much as it did then. And the question is, are you, am I, willing to face ridicule and persecution for his name? The Apostle Paul desired, above all things, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. The early church rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. Will we follow our Lord's example and seek only the glory of God? Or will we seek rather the glory of man? May God grant us, brothers and sisters, the courage to stand for him. Soon he will put all his enemies under his feet and we will reign with him. Is it too much for him to ask that we stand with him in this time of his rejection? Well, we can't do it in our own strength, can we? And that's why we come to the Lord's table each Sunday. Because in these emblems of bread and wine, the Lord Jesus reminds us that we are his and that he is ours and that we are united together. He has ascended to his God and our God, to his Father and our Father, and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we come to the Lord's table and receive these emblems, we we find the strength to face another week. So let's come to the Lord's table.